Located in Mura Ogbromstal, a county located in the west of Norway in the region of Sunmura, is Geirongur, a popular tourist village known for resting by the spectacular Geirongurfjord. In the 1990s, Geirongur had a population of just under 300, with thousands of tourists flocking to the area during the summer months, camping by the sea, residing in cabins and setting their sights on the spectacular waterfalls and mountains. It was Thursday the 8th of August 1996 when 20-year-old Truda Espos wrapped up her shift at the Hotel Union in Geirongur, where she worked on a seasonal basis as a maid. Departing the hotel, she wandered towards a rocky viewpoint nearby, where she sat for a short time at approximately 5.20pm, reading a book with the views of the fjord surrounding her. The following day, Truda's colleagues at the hotel became concerned when she did not appear for her shift. Norwegian police were notified of the 20-year-old's disappearance, and soon a search operation began. A book and a bag belonging to Truda was recovered, however there was no sign of her. Despite thorough searches, no further clues were found for a further 11 days, when, on the 19th of August, hikers who were exploring the forest above the viewpoint followed the trail of a distinctive, unpleasant scent. Ascending the rocky terrain, the hikers found a single shoe and immediately alerted Norwegian authorities. Hunting the area for further clues, police, with the aid of Kripos, a special agency in the Norwegian police, made a bone-chilling discovery. Beneath a pile of rocks and moss lay the body of Truda Espos, less than 100 metres from the viewpoint. She had been raped and murdered. Police retrieved a partial DNA profile of an unidentified individual which was found on the body. Witnesses came forward, including a couple from Uppsala in Sweden who were taking a walk before returning to their campsite on the 8th of August when they saw a young woman sitting on a rock and reading. Upon their return journey at 6pm, the couple confirmed the woman was no longer by the viewpoint. Police strongly believed that the woman was Truda. The Swedish man told authorities that he had deviated from the main pathway and wandered towards the wooded area in order to relieve himself, and during that time he was startled by a scream. The woman too also heard the scream, and both agreed that it sounded very much like a child's. The man explained he saw what he believed to be a man and child playing, and further described a moment when he glanced and saw the alleged child lying down with the man looking over them. However, as the witness descended the terrain, the pair had vanished. No other people, including the Swedish woman, saw the supposed man and child. Truda's body was found just 20 metres away from where the Swedish man had stood. 
The mysterious man who was recreated in a police sketch was described as having been wearing a blue and white striped polo shirt and another witness came forward to police and described how the man with a striped polo shirt and white shorts had asked her for the time that evening and she told authorities that the man spoke German. The man was thought to have been between 30 and 40 years old, around 185 centimetres or 6 feet 1 inch in height, with a normal physique and brown hair and has never been identified. Police aimed to map all identities and vehicles that were present in the village on that summer day. Thousands of tourists from over 40 countries were present in the area at the time of Truda's disappearance and death, with Norwegian police obtaining cameras and photographs from as many of them as possible. One photograph in particular grabbed police's attention. It was snapped at 5.15pm on the 8th of August. At first, it seems like an ordinary picture of the spectacular view. However, upon closer inspection, an unidentified individual appears to be sitting on the rock of the viewpoint. It has never been confirmed, however, it is assumed by many that it is the very last image of Truda Esbos alive. Norwegian media brought the case to the forefront, but despite this, further clues were few and far between. Truda's belongings at her lodgings at the hotel, which she shared with colleagues, were searched and among her possessions was a note which police took particular interest in. She would regularly write entries in a personal diary, scribbling notes throughout the day on a separate sheet of paper in order to write it all up later in the day. The note said, German crutches. Without any further context, it was unknown what the meaning of the note was. It was speculated that perhaps she had conversed with a German wearing crutches and something significant had occurred which she was going to explain in her diary entry. At the time, there were approximately 800 Germans in Geironger, most of whom were tourists. Was this German the same person? It wasn't until two decades later when German television aired a segment about the case, urging any people who were there to come forward in the hope of solving the cold case. Despite 20 years having passed, there was a significant breakthrough following the airing of the programme. A photograph showed a man with a missing leg using crutches on a dock in Geironger. The photo was taken on the same day that Trude wrote the note. Another witness came forward. A woman, who was 16 years old at the time, worked at a kiosk and told police of her experience with the one-legged man. According to the witness, he hung around the area, looking out of place and acting oddly. He approached her and asked very long, in-depth questions, which made her feel uncomfortable. It is thought that Truda also had a conversation of some sort with the man, therefore scribbled a quick note about it. Although not completely impossible, Norwegian police find it difficult to suspect the man of killing Truda and concealing her body, especially considering his disability. Unfortunately, the case of Truda Espos appears to have gone cold, despite police having interviewed over 3,000 people, as well as having obtained new information from the German television appeal. Her family, to this day, are still seeking answers.
17-year-old Yi Wa Ho, known as Eve to her family and friends, was a happy and bubbly teen who was, by 2006, a junior at Harvard Collegiate Institute. She had plans to attend college the following year upon graduating. Eve was an avid user of her mobile phone and spent much of her time texting her friends. On the 14th of August 2006, Eve planned to meet her best friend at the Eaton Centre in Toronto, and later that same day, whilst at her boyfriend's 17-year-old Jackie Lee's home, Eve called another friend, Chris Yao, at 7.45pm. However, this was the last time that Eve was heard from. She was usually very conscientious and never failed to meet her midnight curfew, only this time she did. She also failed to show at the Eaton Centre where she was intending to meet her best friend. It is believed that Eve took her mobile phone with her when she disappeared, but it has never been switched on again. For Eve to simply vanish was completely out of character. Lily, the mother of Jackie Lee, who was Eve's boyfriend, left for work that same morning as usual, leaving her son to play video games. Jackie had recently returned from a trip to Hong Kong, where he visited his father. Later that same day, at approximately 7.30pm, Lily called her son, asking him to run an errand for her. However, when Lily returned home from work later that night, Jackie was nowhere to be found. He hadn't taken any personal belongings with him other than his mobile phone and a minimal amount of cash. However, there has been no activity on his phone since his disappearance. It is unclear whether Lily was aware that Eve was with her son that night. That same day, on the 14th of August 2006, 18-year-old Kevin Lim, a friend of both Eve and Jackie who lived in nearby Scarborough, told his grandmother that he was going to a nearby convenience store to buy a drink and asked for her to leave the front door unlocked as he would return swiftly. Only like his two friends, Eve and Jackie, he never returned. Apart from a small amount of cash, Kevin didn't take anything else with him when he departed. He left his mobile phone and wallet behind. Police initially treated all three cases as runaways, though it seemed odd for the trio, who were constantly on their phones, not to be active on them. Not to mention their bank accounts all remained untouched, and no activity was recorded on online chat rooms they frequented. All three also didn't appear to have any desire to run away or start a new life, though according to their classmates, not much was known about them. They kept themselves to themselves. Apart from their phones, some cash and the clothes on their backs, Eve, Jackie and Kevin took nothing else with them. Interestingly, the trio had been friends and classmates with a 17-year-old boy, Philip Sitt, who disappeared the previous year in September 2005. Eve's mother claimed her daughter didn't know Philip well, but both Jackie and Kevin were good friends with him. Philip lived in Toronto and in the early hours of the 24th of September, he told his family that he was going out with his friends, as he had done the previous night, however he never came home. 
Despite his out-of-character disappearance, police treated Philip's case as a runaway incident. That was until the 9th of August 2006, when the skeletal remains of a teenage boy were found in a field near the small township of Kinghorn, located by King Road, around 30 miles outside of Toronto. Law enforcement kept the discovery close to their chests following the grisly find as they tried to identify John Doe and determine his cause of death. Five days after the bones were discovered, on the 14th of August 2006, Eve Ho, Jackie Lee and Kevin Lim vanished without a trace. The identity of John Doe wasn't actually made public until 11 days later on the 25th of August. It was 17-year-old Philip Sitt. Police also confirmed that Philip was the victim of a homicide, though they didn't elaborate any further as not to compromise their investigation. Only the killer or killers responsible knew Philip's cause of death. After police made the connection between Eve, Jackie, Kevin and Philip, they appealed for the trio to come forward, as authorities believed that they may have known something about Philip's death. Police did reiterate, however, that the three were not deemed suspects in Philip's murder. Many believe that the trio went into hiding or fled the country following the discovery of Philip Sitt's remains, though none of them owned a car and both Jackie and Kevin left their passports at their respective homes and Eve didn't even own a passport. Toronto police didn't know where to begin searching for the teens and unfortunately due to language barriers in their families, media coverage of the trio's disappearance was scarce, though the Ho, Lee and Lim families were cooperative with authorities and helped them as best they could, contributing to an outreach programme led by Toronto police, which involved them publishing videos online in the hopes to raise awareness of the case. Unfortunately, their efforts to gain more leads and tips with these videos proved to be unsuccessful. The trio's computers were seized and analysed in an effort to find anything which could indicate where they had gone, and letters of Eve's were also analysed, but despite their efforts, Toronto police didn't find anything of significance. What truly happened to Eve, Jackie and Kevin remains a mystery, as does the circumstances surrounding the death of Philip Sitt. Though some speculate that the trio were either involved in gang activities or kidnapped, likely due to them possibly knowing about either who was responsible for Philip Sitt's murder or the circumstances surrounding it, the most likely theory is that the teens willingly chose to disappear. It is widely speculated that Eve, Jackie and Kevin went into hiding, fearing that the police would somehow link them to Philip's death, and in order to avoid that situation, they voluntarily vanished, whereas others speculate a possible suicide pact between Ho, Lee and Lim, which was to be carried out if Philip's remains were ever found. It is theorised that possibly a relative or friend helped the trio go into hiding, possibly even in Hong Kong where they had familial connections, though there is no evidence to suggest that this was the case. As previously mentioned, none of the teens took their passports or any official papers, though they could have easily gotten fake passports and papers. 
They could have even created entire new identities if they had the right contacts who knew the right people. But again, there is no evidence to support this theory. Since their disappearance over 14 years ago, no trace of Eve, Jackie or Kevin has ever been found. Did they vanish of their own accord? And if so, why? Did they know what happened to their friend Philip Sitt? Were they involved somehow? Or did the trio somehow meet with foul play? Was the discovery of Philip's remains a mere coincidence or was it the catalyst which caused Eve, Jackie and Kevin to disappear off the face of the earth? Did they know where Philip was buried and therefore knew that the remains found in Kinghorn belonged to him and had no other option but to vanish to save their own skin? Or were they witnesses to Philip's death and threatened by his killer who told them to keep silent or face the consequences? The disappearance of Eve Ho, Jackie Lee and Kevin Lim does come across as somewhat suspicious, especially regarding the discovery of Philip Sitt's remains. However, there is absolutely no evidence to indicate that any of the trio were involved in his death. Both the murder of Philip Sitt and the disappearances of Eve Ho, Jackie Lee and Kevin Lim remain unsolved. On the 8th of January 1914, Robert Stilwell, a cabinet maker's apprentice, patiently waited for a train due to arrive at Mildmay Park Railway Station, located on the North London Line. Once the train came to a halt, he departed from the platform and entered the third-class carriage, with Robert planning on travelling to Broad Street. Shortly into the journey, as the train slowed at Dalston Station, Robert's attention focused on a peculiar sight as he tied his shoelace. His heart dropped as a grim realisation washed over him. A small hand was protruding from underneath one of the train seats. Panicked, he attempted to catch the attention of a porter, however he was unsuccessful. Further up the line, once the train came to a standstill at Haggerston Station at 4.33pm, Stilwell darted from the train, seeking help from the station master, who then demanded the train to be fully searched at the next stop, Shoreditch Station, after the boy voiced his concerns. It was discovered that the body of a boy was tucked beneath the seat in the train compartment, the unidentified child, thought to have been five or six years old, had long flaxen hair styled in ringlets. The cause of death was strangulation, as authorities found pale marks on the boy's neck, suggesting a cord was used to asphyxiate the child. There were other signs of violence, with the boy's face bruised and bloody. A post-mortem which was carried out revealed that the boy suffered from an undiagnosed heart condition which, had he lived, would have cut his life expectancy drastically. After a thorough inspection of the train carriage, it was determined that there were no signs of a disturbance within, suggesting that the boy was deceased before being hidden beneath the seat. 
Later that evening, the child was identified as five-year-old William Starchfield, the son of newspaper seller John Starchfield and Agnes Starchfield. The couple were separated and had been living apart for approximately five months, with William having lived with Agnes at 191 Hampstead Road, northwest of Euston and in the direction of Hampstead Heath. His father lived in a common lodging house in Long Acre, near to the Shard in London. John Starchfield had previously been in the army, but had become a rather famous local character due to an incident which occurred in the autumn of 1912. He was shot by an Armenian man named Stephen Titus, who murdered 37-year-old Thomas Johns and Esther Towers, a 29-year-old barmaid at the Horseshoe Hotel, a public house which was located at 264 Tottenham Court Road, London. Following the killings, Titus fled from the Horseshoe, where John was on the streets selling newspapers. Noticing the chaos, he delayed Titus's escape, but was shot. John was treated in hospital, and once he was released, the judge in Titus's case awarded him £50, approximately £6,000 in today's money, with the Carnegie Fund giving him £1 a week for the rest of his life, around £115 in current British currency as a reward for his bravery. Several others who aided in apprehending Titus were also rewarded varying sums of money. 27-year-old Stephen Titus was convicted of the double murder and two counts of attempted murder. He was also declared insane upon his incarceration. On the 8th of January 1914, John Starchfield had been on bed rest. Since the shooting, he had suffered greatly in the aftermath. According to John, on the day in question, he lay in bed until 3.30pm, bought a coffee at an Endell Street cafe at 3.45pm and by 4pm he was back out on the cobbles of Oxford Street, selling newspapers until 7pm, returning home soon afterwards. John told police that he had not seen William in three weeks. Agnes Starchfield left her son with the landlady of her lodging while she visited friends and sought a job between 12 noon and 1pm. In her absence, the landlady suggested that Willie, as William was affectionately known, could collect some cards for her. The cards were available at a shop 22 houses away and had to let inscribed on them. William ventured out and quickly returned, however the landlady was not pleased with the cards. She subsequently requested that William go back to the shop on Hampstead Road and buy alternatives. William departed at 1pm. Mr Knapp, the stationery shop's manager, gave him the cards and witnessed William exiting the establishment. This would be the last time that William Starchfield was seen alive. Details about what happened after 1pm are a mystery. 
Medical examinations were conducted and it was concluded that William was murdered between 2pm and 3pm, with the body being abandoned on the train for multiple stops before being noticed by Robert Stilwell. The inquest into William's death began on the 15th of January 1914. Two signalmen reported finding cord on the train line on the day of the murder, which could have been used to strangle the boy. Another signalman who was on duty at the St Pancras signal box witnessed a train pass at 2.14pm on the day of the murder. The locomotive had come from Chalk Farm in North London and the witness described seeing a tall man bending over what he thought was a young girl. The signalman was invited to examine the face of the deceased child and he confirmed that William was the child he saw. With William having had long hair and ringlets, the signalman assumed that he was a young girl. A witness in Camden Coal Yard recalled seeing a man between 2.30pm and 3pm, again bending over something in a train carriage, and he also believed that the unknown man was also wrapping up a parcel. Allegedly, a witness saw a woman and boy together, with the woman tugging at the boy's arm. The child, who allegedly resembled William, seemed reluctant to go with her. John Moore, a timber porter, stated he saw John and a young boy at 1.50pm at Camden Town Tube Station, soon after he left an ironmonger's shop, walking near Kentish Town Road in Camden. Clara Wood, one of the witnesses at the inquest, remembered seeing a man and a young boy holding hands and wandering the street. Crucially, she recalled that the boy was eating a slice of currant cake. Her recollection was of high interest to authorities as William's post-mortem examination found that the boy's stomach contents included partially digested food, which contained currants. Asked if she could recall the man's face, Clara replied that she could. She then pointed in the direction of John Starchfield. He strongly denied being with his son that day, and fellow dwellers of his lodging house gave witness testimonies confirming that John was in bed at his residence at the time. John White, a commercial traveller, said that he saw a man and boy together at Camden Town Station. He again identified the man as John Starchfield, but John was adamant in claiming that White's testimony was a lie. The jury at the Old Bailey came to a decision and declared a willful murder charge against John Starchfield, who was then taken into custody in order to await trial. As the trial date loomed, one of the case's key witnesses attempted to take their own life, and Clara Wood was noted to have failed to explain several details during cross-examination. Her story had many flaws, and it was reported that she had already seen a photograph of John Starchfield in a newspaper before she reported her alleged sighting. She was shown a photograph of William, but she was unable to confirm that he was the young boy she had allegedly seen. The trial concluded, and in a turn of events, the jury declared John Starchfield as being not guilty of killing his son. 
After being freed from jail, John continued to insist that he was innocent and his son's death was an act of revenge for the incarceration of Stephen Titus in 1912. Just two years after the trial, in 1916, John Startfield passed away in St Pancras Infirmary. The truth about who murdered William Starchfield, their motive for doing so and how the boy ended up on the train are just a few missing pieces of a complex case, which over a century on remains unsolved. At 11.27am on the 20th of September 1978, near the North Cheyenne Reservation on the outskirts of Ashland, Montana, a transient who was scavenging for bottles and cans discovered the body of a young woman in a roadside ditch. She was found lying on her back with her head at the bottom of the ditch, fully clothed with her hands tucked inside her shirt sleeves. The woman had died due to a head injury and authorities concluded that she had died accidentally. However, later revelations would dispute this conclusion. The victim was determined to be 20-year-old Iris May Whistling Elk, a woman of the North Cheyenne tribe. Iris was born on the 31st of December 1957 to Benno Standing Elk and Josephine Whistling Elk. She was the second of the couple's nine children. Her father passed away when she was a child and her mother died at the age of 35 from liver disease. Iris and her oldest sibling, Catherine, cared for their siblings on the North Cheyenne Reservation. Iris, who loved to sing, was said to have been kind, selfless, encouraging, inquisitive and good with children. During her teenage years, Iris went to live with her aunt, May Whistling Elk, and her husband, Robert Conn, in Lame Deer, Montana. She also resided temporarily with two other aunts, Lillian Three Fingers and Lamel Whistling Elk, as well as foster parents, Mr. and Mrs. Clyde Cauliflower. Iris, who had been slightly behind in her schoolwork, managed to successfully graduate from high school in Busby in 1978 and received a scholarship to the University of Montana. By 1978, Iris, who stood at 5 feet 2 inches tall, was living in a hamlet called Rabbit Town, located on the reservation by the Tongue River. Iris's brother, Clyde Redwoman, told the Billings Gazette that he had a vision of his sister on the day of her death, claiming to have seen her brushing her hair in a window of a house she frequented in Lame Deer. Clyde, curious, entered the house, calling his sister's name and opening the door to the room he saw her in, only to be greeted by silence and a rush of cold air. He was quoted as saying, I knew then that she was gone. Iris was last witnessed at a local bar, thought to have been the Club Buffet Bar in mid-September of 1978. 
An autopsy concluded that Iris had more than likely been dead between one to three days before being found and was heavily intoxicated at the time of her death, with her blood alcohol level measuring as 0.26. Initially, authorities examined her head wounds, including bruises on her face, and believed Whistling Elk had died accidentally, having perhaps had a fall and stumbled into the night, walking aimlessly on the road where she eventually succumbed to her injuries a few hours later. The original autopsy also stated that Iris had suffered multiple injuries to her head and body, most of which indicating blunt force trauma. Officials said there was no evidence to suggest that Iris had been assaulted and most likely had suffered due to a fall and as a result of exposure to the dropping autumn temperatures passed away. It is not clear whether the trauma to her skull was listed as her cause of death, however, authorities officially named her death as suspicious. Iris's family strongly believe she was murdered. In a 2006 article in the Billings Gazette, Iris's sister, Catherine Flores, said she had sent numerous letters to the Rosebud County authorities, pleading to have them investigate her sister's case further. She was told in 1998 that she would be contacted by the lead investigator on the case, however, she never received any form of contact. The family even contacted producers at the television show America's Most Wanted, eager to give Iris's case much needed exposure, however they did not take on the case. Having waited many more years, local attorney Michael Hayworth reviewed Whistling Elk's case. Dr. Thomas Bennett, a forensic pathologist, reviewed the autopsy records and determined that Iris had died due to a catastrophic subdural hematoma, a bleed on the brain caused by blunt force trauma. He indicated that Iris had further blunt force trauma injuries on her head and body. Her injuries were not consistent with that of being struck by a vehicle and there was no evidence of any defensive wounds, however some sources state that there were defensive wounds. Bennett believed that Whistling Elk had either fallen numerous times or was brutally beaten to death. It was more than likely that Iris suffered her injuries elsewhere and her body was subsequently abandoned in the ditch. A suspect in Iris's death was identified, however, her family were not informed of the fact for over two decades. The unnamed suspect passed a polygraph test and was released. Iris's family believe she may have been beaten by a group of women who were envious of her, or perhaps a man Iris had met at the bar killed her in a drunken state. Despite contacting several different authorities, her family were helped very little in finding justice for Iris. Shocking statistics released by the US Department of Justice showed that Indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than the national average. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a study which also determined that Native American women under the age of 35 have a much higher risk of being killed in comparison to their fellow Americans. In 2016, of 5,712 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women, only 116 of them, around 2%, were officially listed on the US Department of Justice's missing persons list, according to the Urban Indian Health Institute. 95% of cases were never covered by the media, both nationally and internationally. Missing and murdered Indigenous women is an issue affecting thousands of Indigenous people in Canada and the United States, including communities such as First Nations, Inuit, Métis and Native Americans. 84% of Native American and Alaskan Native women have reported as being victims of violence during their lives, with most cases logged in states such as New Mexico, Washington, Arizona, Alaska, California, Nebraska, Utah, Minnesota, Oklahoma and Montana. Specific cities with the most cases include Seattle, Washington, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Anchorage, Alaska, Tucson, Arizona, Gallup, New Mexico, Tacoma, Washington, Omaha, Nebraska, Salt Lake City, Utah, San Francisco, California, and Billings, Montana, Iris's home. It has repeatedly been described as a national crisis. Justice seems like a distant and impossible goal to reach for the loved ones of the missing and murdered. This desperately needs to change, and their voices need to be heard. Iris Whistling Elk's life was celebrated at Lame Deer Catholic Church before she was laid to rest in Busby Cemetery. Her family remain without any answers to ease their grief. As of April 2020, more than 40 years on from her death, the case of Iris Whistling Elk remains unsolved. The body of a maid slain by an unknown perpetrator in the dark of night. It is a mysterious case which has all the elements expected to be found in an Agatha Christie novel, a remote country house situated in a sleepy English village, a secret rendezvous at midnight during a thunderstorm, and cold-blooded murder. Peasenhall is a remote village situated in the East Anglian county of Suffolk, England. In the early 20th century, Providence House was a prestigious country home located within the vicinity of the village. The local Baptist elder and tailor, Mr Deacon William Crisp, resided there alongside his wife. In the early 20th century, Crisp hired a 22-year-old woman called Rose Annie Harsent as a maid at Providence House. According to those who knew her, Rose was a lively young woman who was very attractive. She was born in March 1879 in Hall and had a brother named Henry, known as Harry, who was nine years her junior. 
Rose was also a devout member of the Sibton Methodist Church and was a singer in the choir. Upon arriving at Providence House, Rose was given her own sleeping quarters at the very top of the building. From the attic room, there was a staircase leading towards the kitchen and a small window that looked out onto a nearby double dwelling between the Swan Inn and Angel Inn. This was where William Gardner and his wife, Georgina Cady, lived alongside their six children. William Gardner was a 35-year-old man who worked at a local seed drill works called Smith & Sons. He was also a church elder who was a Sunday school teacher and led the choir in which 22-year-old Rose Harsent sang. Gardner was, at the time, a very well-respected member of the Peasenhall community. On the night of the 31st of May 1902, a lightning storm hit Peasenhall at approximately 11.30pm, the treacherous conditions forcing many residents to take shelter indoors from the torrential rain. As the storm raged on during the evening, Rose received a letter, seemingly from an anonymous source, which read, Dear R, I will try to see you tonight at 12 o'clock at your place. If you put a light in your window at 10 o'clock for about 10 minutes, then you can take it out again. Don't have a light in your room at 12, as I will come round to the back. Rose followed the instructions laid out in this letter, lighting a candle at 10pm and making her way to the back door at around midnight. However, in doing so, Rose was violently attacked, brutally slain in the night by an unknown perpetrator. The following morning, on the 1st of June, Rose's father, William Harsent, visited Providence House to return some fresh laundry to his daughter, entering through the back door and through into the kitchen. However, it was at this point that a gruesome scene befell him. His daughter, Rose, was lying lifelessly at the bottom of the stairs, surrounded by a pool of blood. She was wearing only her nightdress and a pair of socks, the former appearing to have been burned. At first glance, it appeared that Rose had perhaps accidentally fallen down the stairs and during the fall, an oil lamp she was carrying caught her dress and in turn went up in flames. But this was far from the truth. The scene had been staged to look like an accident. Rose's face was severely bruised, her throat had been slashed from ear to ear and she had been stabbed in the chest numerous times. The young woman also appeared to have defensive wounds on her hands. It appeared that the killer had tried to burn Rose's body using paraffin as a bottle of the substance was found near to her partially charred body with her arms and legs badly burnt. An oil lamp was also found nearby, perhaps used by Rose whilst on her way to the secret midnight meeting, or perhaps it was possessed by the killer. Discovered beneath Rose's head was burnt pieces of a newspaper, which authorities presumed was used to start the fire. What is interesting about the newspaper shreds was that the scraps were torn from the East Anglian Daily Times. This newspaper was not read by anyone in Providence House, but it was read by their neighbour, William Gardner. 
Authorities promptly arrived on the scene to conduct their inquiries and to investigate Rose's death. Meanwhile, her body was taken to the morgue for a post-mortem examination, which revealed very interesting information. Rose was unmarried, however, as it transpired, during the autopsy, she was found to have been six months pregnant at the time of her death. Rose had allegedly refused to tell anyone about the father of her unborn child, and even tried to have the child terminated at one stage. However, the abortion attempt failed. Rose tried to keep her pregnancy a secret for as long as possible so that she didn't face losing her job at Providence House. Whilst conducting various inquiries into the gruesome Peasenhall murder, police discovered that in May 1901, two local men, George Wright and Alfonso Skinner, witnessed Rose Harsent entering the so-called Doctor's Chapel at the church, with William Gardner following suit, looking rather suspicious. George and Alfonso discreetly followed Gardner into the chapel, placing their ears up against the walls to listen in on what was going on. The two men reported hearing Rose laughing and making noises of a sexual nature. This was followed by Rose telling William about a part of the Bible she had been reading, which explained what they had just been doing. According to various sources, George and Alfonso claimed that Rose spoke about chapter 38 of Genesis regarding a passage suggesting sexual relations. Following the secretive and scandalous encounter, George Wright and Alfonso Skinner spread their shocking tale like wildfire, and before long, the residents of Peasenhall were whispering of a secret rendezvous between a church elder and a servant. With Peasenhall being a very small place, it didn't take long for the news to get back to William Gardner himself. At around 10pm on the night in question, witnesses saw Gardner speaking with a neighbour about the impending storm. He denied all of the allegations made against him, but this didn't stop him from finding the two men who had eavesdropped on him. He demanded that they wrote apologies to him, but they refused. William was left angered, and what made matters worse was the fact that the church elders were considering investigating the claims made by Wright and Skinner. An unofficial trial conducted only by church elders occurred, however it ended with a not proven verdict. Not long after this incident, a local preacher named Henry Ruse saw Gardner and Harsent in an alleyway together. Ruse spoke to Gardner following the incident, warning him that he should be careful. Ruse did not want any scandalous activities that Gardner was engaging in to harm the reputation of the church. Gardner allegedly apologised to him and insisted that he would be more discreet in future. After learning of Rose and William's affair, investigators were convinced that Gardner was the father of Rose's unborn child, and after investigating the crime scene further, he became the prime suspect in her murder. A man of such reputation in the local church couldn't afford to have such a secretive affair exposed, let alone have a child born out of wedlock as a result. Police believed this alone was motive enough for William Gardner to have killed Rose Harsent. Much of the evidence found didn't exactly favour William Gardner. 
A neighbour allegedly saw him on his front steps at around 10pm on the night of the murder, bearing in mind his residence was just across from Providence House. William appeared to be waiting for something, and the neighbour noted a light coming from a high room in Providence House. This seemed to match up with the anonymous letter which asked for a candle to be lit at 10pm by Rose. Police compared William's handwriting to that on the anonymous letter found in Rose's bedroom regarding the meeting at midnight, and there were a number of striking similarities. This, along with the fact William was seen outside his residence as the candle was lit from the top bedroom window, certainly makes it seem as if he was the anonymous writer. It is also alleged that the envelope used to send the letter was one which was used at the seed drill works where Mr Gardner worked. A local gamekeeper also claimed to have seen a pair of muddy footprints leading to and from Providence House and the Gardner's residence in the early hours of June the 1st. After comparing a sketch of these footprints to shoes owned by William Gardner, it was clear to police that these footprints had been left by him. Another witness claimed to have seen Gardner starting a fire near to the wash house just an hour prior to Rose's body being discovered. It is entirely possible that Gardner could have been burning evidence, such as bloodstained clothing, although William's wife claimed that he was just boiling some water. Also, rather interestingly, Mr and Mrs Crisp claimed to have heard a scream and a thud in the night, although apparently this claim was not investigated further. This is perhaps due to the fact that the thunder and lightning continued throughout the night and the noises they heard could have simply been caused by the heavy storm. Authorities tried to find the murder weapon and in doing so became interested in a penknife owned by Mr Gardner. The knife had spatters of blood on the hinge, but unfortunately, experts couldn't decipher whether the blood was human or not. Upon being questioned about the blood, William Gardner claimed it was from a rabbit he had disemboweled, but of course, these claims could not be verified. The bottle of paraffin found at the crime scene was found out to have belonged to William Gardner's son. Evidence against Gardner was stacking up. It is widely speculated that Rose actually initiated the midnight meeting and that perhaps she was going to ask Gardner for a financial contribution to provide for their child, but in order to save his reputation, William killed Rose. Police questioned William Gardner extensively, but he blatantly denied having any involvement in Rose Harson's death. He denied having an affair with her denied ever meeting with her that night and even denied being the father to her unborn child. Gardner claimed that he was home in bed, a story which was backed up by his wife Georgina. However, despite this, police charged William Gardner with Rose's murder. On the 7th of November 1902, William Gardner went to trial in Ipswich for the murder of Rose Harsant, with Henry Fielding Dickens, son of famous Victorian novelist Charles Dickens, acting for the prosecution. The defence tried to throw blame onto a 20-year-old neighbour, Frederick James Davis, who was known to have had deep affections for Rose, and had even written explicit reading material for her as per her own request. However, Frederick was ruled out of having any involvement in her death. 
The key witness for the defence was Georgina Gardner, who was adamant that her husband was home all night when Rose was killed, something which was backed up by a neighbour who was awake for the entire night because of the storm. She never saw anyone leave the Gardner residence during the night or in the early hours of the morning. Georgina could not be trusted as a reliable witness, however, due to the fact that she was incredibly loyal to her husband. Despite the claims made by Georgina, the evidence against her husband was damning, despite most of it being purely circumstantial. The jury retired to consider their verdict at 4.15pm, returning to the courtroom at approximately 8.40pm. Unfortunately, the jury could not reach a unanimous decision. Eleven were in favour of conviction, one was not. Therefore, William was made a free man. A second trial was then held, commencing on the 21st of January 1903. However, once again, the jurors failed to reach a unanimous decision. A third trial was considered, but authorities did not believe that they would secure a conviction. After all, so much of the evidence against William Gardner was circumstantial. The case was subsequently dismissed, and as a result of this and never-ending suspicions from Peasonhall residents, the Gardners moved away to the south of London, where William lived out the rest of his life and passed away in 1941. Despite all of the evidence against William Gardner, many believe that he was innocent, that he was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Some do speculate, however, that William may have been covering for someone, if anyone, most likely his wife, Georgina. It is entirely possible that, upon discovering her husband's affair, she became enraged with jealousy and, as a result, killed Rose, but there is no solid evidence to support this theory. Many questions still remain regarding Rose's murder, such as why murder a pregnant woman in cold blood? Was it carried out to protect a reputation? Why stage the crime scene to look like an accident when so much evidence, on the contrary, was left behind? Was William Gardner actually the biological father of Rose's child, or was it someone else? Who was Rose going to meet at midnight? It was rumoured that Rose had a string of lovers in Peasonhall. Perhaps one of these men were involved in her callous murder, but even if they were, police never caught them. William Gardner is one of few men in Britain whose case never reached a conclusive verdict. He was never convicted of the crime nor acquitted, and over a century on, the case remains unsolved, with her killer never identified. Rose Harsant was laid to rest on the 5th of June 1902 in Peasonhall Cemetery, the cross above her grave bearing an inscription which reads, In affectionate remembrance of Rose Annie Harsant, whose life was cruelly taken on the 1st of June 1902 in her 23rd year, a light is from our household gone, a voice we loved is stilled. A place is vacant in our home that never can be filled. Johann Mathis Martin Schippen was born in Brandenburg, Germany on the 15th of December 1850. 
In October 1853, the Shippen family boarded a ship docked at Hamburg, the vessel departing for Australia. Following a long voyage at sea, the Shippens arrived at Port Adelaide in South Australia in February 1854. Not much is known about Mathis' youth, however, before moving to Australia, it was said that his young brother was mauled to death by a wolf. After their arrival in Australia, his mother Anna passed away, and his father became an alcoholic. On the 23rd of July 1874, Mathis married Joanne Louise Elizabeth Don't in a chapel located in Eden Valley, South Australia. Joanne was born in Prussia on the 9th of April 1844 and relocated to Australia in 1854, originally settling in Victoria and later moved to the wine regions in the south of the country. Although many believed the couple to be German, they were actually of Wendish descent. This particular group were known to be fairly different to Germans, with their own language, customs and traditions. It was rumoured that those who identified as being Wendish dabbled in superstitions and witchcraft. However, those who accused them of this were God-fearing Lutherans. Mathis and Joanne became parents to seven children, several of which used different names from which they were given at birth. Pauline Augusta, born on the 1st of August 1875. Maria Augusta, known as Mary, born on the 10th of September 1877. Carl Frederick, known as Fritz Carl Martin, born on the 13th of May 1879. Heinrich Johann Gustav, known as Henry Harry Shepherd, born on the 1st of March 1881. August Wilhelm, known as Gustav to his family, born on the 26th of May 1883. Wilhelm Johann Gottlieb, born on the 22nd of March 1886. And Joanne Elizabeth, known as Bertha, who was born on the 16th of January 1888. The Shippens lived in a self-built cottage in a small German farming settlement in the locality of Tewitta, near the town of Sedan. The family were rocked by scandal when, in 1896, Mathis found himself in an unwanted situation. He was on his way to collect two of his children from a neighbour's house when he was taunted by three young men. Carl Hartwig, his brother Herman, and their friend William Radomi. Shippen had a rifle in his possession and the trio were urging him to shoot at them. One of the men began throwing stones at Mathis, who insisted that they stop attacking him. For people who knew Mathis Shippen, they were all aware of his authoritative ways and short temper. He was seen as being very strict with his children and could be easily angered. Therefore, the situation he found himself in that day would see him fall into a fit of rage with dire consequences. The three men bolted towards Shippen and shoved him to the ground, which was the last straw. He fired a bullet into the ground as they darted away. The bullet ricocheted and struck Karl Hartwig in the calf. Hartwig survived his injuries, but Mathis was arrested by police. 
The case was ultimately thrown out by the prosecutor with the judge giving him a stern warning that Hartwig could have been killed, which would have resulted in Shippen hanging at Adelaide jail for the crime. Following this, Mathis was rarely seen wandering to Witta and chose to stay away from prying eyes. Mathis and Joanne's eldest daughter, Pauline, tragically passed away in 1899 due to tuberculosis. The family had endured a difficult couple of years, but with the new century approaching, they hoped that their futures would hold great things. The patriarch of the family had seemingly turned his life around following the turn of the century, having cultivated 65 hectares of farmland, which included several farm buildings, a kitchen, garden and cottage. Because the original house was crumbling over the years, he constructed a new home for the family to live in, which included an underground dairy and two water tanks. Mathis, Joanne and their daughters shared the house while the sons stayed in a shed behind the dwelling. On the 27th of December 1901, Mathis and Joanne departed from Tuwita and travelled to visit relatives in Flaxman's Valley, leaving four of their children, Mary, Bertha, Gustav and Wilhelm, at the cottage. On New Year's Day 1902, brothers Wilhelm and Gustav took a hunting trip together in the hope of finding birds, rabbits and foxes to eat. They managed to shoot a couple of parrots and returned to the cottage at around lunchtime. Wilhelm plucked the feathers from the parrots and cleaned the carcasses, with Mary then placing the meat in a safe. The brothers then went to a friend's house nearby, leaving Mary and Bertha alone in the house, but at some point in the afternoon, Bertha left to play with some of her friends. As evening fell, Bertha returned home to aid her older sister with feeding and watering the animals on the farm. At 7pm, Mary and Bertha ate dinner. Bertha retired to bed for the night as Mary sat on the doorstep waiting for her brothers to come home. She didn't have to wait long as Gustav and Wilhelm made it home safely at approximately 8pm. After eating some cake, they went to bed in their shared outhouse, the siblings falling asleep with silence falling over the Tuwita house. Between 10pm and midnight, Mary was suddenly startled awake, feeling a heavy weight on top of her. Instinct kicked in and she screamed, only to be grabbed by both wrists and thrown across the room, hitting her head off a wall before landing on the floor. Bertha awoke to the commotion and both she and her sister yelled for their brother Gustav to come and help them. The intruder, who was reported to have been a male of similar height to Mary, had a gruff voice and ordered the sisters to shut up or I will kill you. He forced Mary to exit the bedroom and go to the kitchen, where Mary caught a glimpse of something in the coat of the man and she heard the weapon clatter off the floor, assuming it to be a knife. Luckily, as the assailant was searching for the knife, Mary managed to escape the cottage, bolting towards the outhouse where once again she alerted her brother for help. 
Gustav initially didn't believe Mary's story, believing it to be some sort of practical joke. However, the ship and siblings froze when they heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the cottage. Gustav ran to a nearby farmstead to raise the alarm, whilst Mary and Wilhelm stayed in the outhouse, waiting for their brother to return. Gustav spoke to a neighbour whose name was Fred Henke, however he stated that there was simply nothing he could do to help, leaving the 18-year-old to quickly go back to the ship in residence. Before entering the kitchen door, which had been swung open, the trio each grabbed a pitchfork. Managing to find lights, they could clearly see pools of blood all over the kitchen. Witnessing the scene chilled them to the bone, leaving them trembling with fear. Too afraid to go deeper into the house, they all went to another farm close by, which belonged to the Lambert family, and was residence of the district constable Alfred Charles Lambert. Constable Lambert followed the Shippens to the cottage, stepping into the kitchen together. Lighting a lantern, they followed the blood trail. There were puddles of blood over the floor, spatters in the fireplace and on the couch and walls. Blood was also present on the beds, both in the girls' room as well as Mathis and Joanne's bedroom. The trail ended in this bedroom where the foursome witnessed a gruesome and heartbreaking scene. 13-year-old Bertha Shippen, still dressed in her nightclothes, lay in a pool of her own blood. Her face was buried beneath her arms with her legs outstretched. Bertha had been stabbed in the back of the neck, had a cut on her chin, gashes in both cheeks, bruises on her lower body and her throat had been slit from ear to ear. The Adelaide Register stating that her death had been almost instantaneous due to the severe wound to her carotid artery. The perpetrator had slit her throat from left to right and there was evidence that they had cut at her neck at least thrice. An autopsy confirmed that she had not been sexually assaulted. Two butcher knives which belonged to Mathis Shippen were found in the living room. One was bloodstained and confirmed by police as being the murder weapon. Alf Lambert took the Shippens under his wing and hurried them back to his house, leaving them in the care of his parents as he headed towards Truro Police Station to report the slaying and seek help. After hearing the devastating news, Mathis and Joanne rode back to Tewitta and an inquest into the girl's death was opened. To confirm the identity of the deceased, Mathis Shippen identified the body as being that of his daughter Bertha, who would have turned 14 just a fortnight later. He told police that everybody were on good terms with each other and were a loving, close-knit family. He said that he had no suspicions about who murdered his youngest child. Bertha had also been Mathis's favourite child. She was described as an outgoing and friendly individual and was strong both mentally and physically. She had worked at a canning factory alongside her older sister and offered to help out on the farm whenever she could. An inquest into the youngster's death was temporarily put on hold until after Bertha's funeral. Because of the summer temperatures, a quick burial had to be carried out. 
With her loved ones present, Bertha was laid to rest on Friday the 3rd of January 1902 in Sedan Cemetery. Dr. Ramsey Smith, who was the city coroner and head of the Department of Health, stated that he had examined some hair which was found at the crime scene. It appeared to have been ripped from the roots, and blood was found on both Bertha's body and Mary's clothes. Mary said she had helped her father slaughter a few sheep a couple of days earlier, which apparently explained the blood. Unfortunately, authorities were unable to confirm whether the blood belonged to a human or to sheep. Constable Alfred Lambert declared that there was no sign of disturbance in the ship and home, and there had not been any reports made to police about a stranger wandering in the night. The media swarmed into Tewita and were granted to take photographs of the family. Despite their grief and endless questions asked to them, the Shippen family answered every single one. Journalists, photographers and members of the public gathered around the property as the inquest took place in one of the outbuildings, everybody desperate to find out more information. The surrounding areas of Sedan and Angustin were packed with people who filled lodging houses to capacity as the story became a sensation in Australia. Gustav and Wilhelm were the first to make statements during the inquest, followed by the doctor who had conducted Bertha's post-mortem examination. Initially, whilst examining her body at the scene of the crime, Dr. Steele had stated that there were pieces of clothing around the deceased, which was later found to have belonged to Mary. Mary had scratches on her arms, several bruises and a sore neck. The doctor couldn't find any evidence to suggest that she had suffered any injury to her neck, which was noted to have also been recently washed, a piece of evidence which many found to be suspicious. Joanne and Mathis were questioned, but as they had left the property in late December, there was not much they could offer in terms of information. On the 11th of January, Mary Shippen was then interviewed for over four hours, answering each question put forward to her. Mary made a surprising and scandalous confession that she had been in a secret relationship with a Tawita labourer named Gustav Nietzsche. Mary and Gustav had been lovers for approximately one year and it was revealed that Bertha was aware of their relationship. Nietzsche admitted during questioning that improper conduct had passed between himself and 24-year-old Mary, and the couple had engaged in sex at least three times with Bertha in the next room. He and Bertha got along very well, and Gustav even joked about taking Bertha to Adelaide with him. Mary and Gustav spent the evening of the 27th of December 1901 together at the house, just hours after Mathis and Joanne had departed for Flaxman's Valley. Police believed that the relationship could have been a motive for Gustav to kill Bertha, afraid that she would expose them. However, several witnesses were able to confirm that Nietzsche had been in Adelaide at the time of the murder. The jury at the inquest retired to consider the evidence at 5.55pm and returned at 7pm to deliver their verdict. 
Amos Baker, the foreman of the jury, had written the verdict, which was read out by the coroner after a lifetime of suspense. It stated, We, the jury, are all of opinion that Bertha Elizabeth Shippen met her death on the first night of January 1902 by having her throat cut by Mary Augusta Shippen. The Adelaide Journal described the aftermath of the verdict. It was received by the large number of spectators in complete silence, and Mary, who retained absolute composure, displayed great fortitude. The girl sat like a marble statue while the verdict was read. She flinched once, but her countenance set itself again, and then she appeared as calm and collected as when she gave her evidence. Mary was allowed to return home to collect a few clothes before being escorted by trap to Angiston for a night in a cell. Leaving her home at daybreak, she was said to have been pleading her innocence and weeping bitterly, her mother standing in the doorway and crying piteously in the arms of her husband. Mary Shippen was ushered onto two trains, then was driven to Adelaide Jail, where she would be incarcerated whilst awaiting trial. The trial date was set for the 4th of March 1902. The case caused a frenzy in Adelaide, with crowds gathering in Victoria Square, located near to the courthouse, and some even waited outside Adelaide Jail in the hopes of catching a glimpse of the accused. The case was adjourned until the next day, where Mary pleaded not guilty. Throughout the trial proceedings, the public supported Mary Shippen, however they painted Gustav Nietzsche as the true villain. The prosecution put forward the idea that the motive for the crime was likely jealousy. Either Mary was jealous of Nietzsche's affections for Bertha, or Nietzsche was fearful that his relationship with Mary would be exposed and ultimately ruin his reputation. The defence, led by Sir Josiah Simon, who was the best lawyer in the state, put forward their case over an entire day which described Mary as a woman of good character who would never cause harm to anyone. In doing this, however, the defence ridiculed Gustav Nietzsche, which fueled the fire of resentment towards him from the public. When leaving court, he was attacked twice and was forced to flee from the angry mob. On the sixth day, a verdict was reached after two hours of deliberation. Just after 8pm, the Crown asked jury foreman John Bradley whether Mary Shippen was guilty or not guilty of murder. There was a silent anticipation in the air as the crowd waited for their answer in the courtroom which was glowing in candlelight. Mary Shippen, who was accused of killing her sister Bertha, was found not guilty. The crowd burst into an uproar of cheers as they celebrated the verdict they had hoped for. Mary was embraced by her parents and was then taken to a police vehicle outside which drove her away from the court. A small selection of people remained at the court, wishing to hurl abuse at Gustav Nietzsche, but police managed to divert them and let Nietzsche escape the mob towards safety. The family made their way back home to the Towita cottage, which had been pristinely cleaned on Mathis's orders after his daughter was taken to jail. 
Sadly, life was never quite the same after the family's horrific ordeal. Locals continued to gossip about the tragedy that had befallen the Shippens, and there were rumours that the murderer was Mathis himself. He had apparently murdered a hawker, and Bertha threatened to tell the authorities. One of the two horses the family owned was wet with perspiration in the early hours following Bertha's murder, fueling speculation that Mathis had somehow snuck away from Flaxman's Valley and vigorously rode through the rugged terrain to kill Bertha in Towita, and returned to Flaxman's Valley undetected. There was no evidence, however, to solidify this theory, and it seemed unlikely that he could have travelled to and from Tuwita and Flaxman's Valley before dawn. Mary Shippen retreated from life in the public eye and became a recluse at the farm, the locals naming her the Grey Lady. In 1908, the Shippens left their abode in Tuwita and moved into a four-bedroom property at Light Pass in the Barossa Valley. On the 31st of May 1911, Mathis passed away aged 61, and it was rumoured that he confessed to the murder on his deathbed to a local pastor, and it was often said that Mary thought the killer resembled her father, however neither of these statements could ever be confirmed. Tragedy struck the family once more when, in 1917, Mary began to show symptoms of tuberculosis and subsequently moved to a consumptive home. Joanne left Light Pass to live with her son, Gustav, in Mount Mary. Mary's health rapidly deteriorated and, realising that she was on the brink of death, she took one last journey to visit her mother and brother. At the age of 41, Mary Shippen passed away with her loved ones by her side and was buried in Bower Cemetery. Joanne died on the 8th of September 1923 and Wilhelm, just like his older sister, passed away due to tuberculosis aged 42. There is no information regarding the fate of the remaining family members. As for Gustav Nietzsche, he struggled to live in southern Australia without being recognised by the public, who had seen his photograph in nationwide newspaper articles. He moved to another Australian state and changed his name to Gus Nichols in 1919. He married, had four children and died in 1954. The cottage where Bertha Shippen lost her life no longer stands, however, curious travellers continue to visit the location. It is a compelling yet harrowing case which has gripped the nation of Australia for over a century, with the assailant having never been identified. A life tragically cut short, Bertha Shippen never got to live a full, fulfilling life, but her memory remains in the hearts and minds of Australians to this day. Charles Walton was a 74-year-old agricultural labourer who resided in the sleepy village of Lower Quinton, Warwickshire, England. Charles had lived there for his entire life and was a well-liked member of the tight-knit community with no known enemies. 
He was a bit of a recluse, but had a quirky and eccentric character. And interestingly, according to rumours, Charles had a talent for communicating with animals, having worked as a horse trainer in his youth. For example, it was said that birds would eat from the palms of his hands, and he could soothe the tempers of horses and wild, rabid dogs by using just his voice. Despite suffering from health problems such as rheumatism, he continued working on several farms as often as he could. In 1945, he was living at a rented, half-timbered cottage located opposite the village church with his niece and housekeeper, 33-year-old Edith Isabel Walton, known as Edie, who he had adopted at age three, following the death of her mother. Edie's father, however, was still alive and residing in Stratford. On Valentine's Day 1945, Charles Walton left his home at 15 Lower Quinton, travelling by foot to the farm of Alfred Potter. He had worked on Potter's farm for nine months at this point, and the farm itself was known locally as the Furs. Charles took with him a fruitcake for his lunch, a slash hook and a pitchfork, both tools used to trim hedges. It was later confirmed by witnesses that Charles had departed for the furs at approximately 9am. At 6pm that evening, Edie returned to the cottage, having spent the day working at the Royal Society of Arts as a printer assembler. She was puzzled to discover that the property was empty and that there was no sign of Charles, who would normally have finished his duties by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Concerned, she enlisted the help of her neighbour, Harry Beasley, and the pair made their way up to the farm. En route, they bumped into Alfred Potter, who reassured them that he had seen Charles working on trimming hedges up at the Furs, at a location named Meon Hill, the furthest of the Cotswolds Mounds, which has many tales of phantom hunters and hounds. After checking the hedged area of hill ground on the slopes of Meon Hill, the trio made a grisly discovery. In a ditch by the hedges, Charles Walton lay deceased. His pitchfork, which had a broken handle, had been pierced through his neck, pinning him to the ground, and blood had seeped into the grass. His throat had been slit by the slash hook, and it was apparent that he had been viciously beaten around the head with his walking stick. Even more horrifying was that a crucifix had been carved into the skin on his chest. The only item noted as missing was a watch belonging to the victim, however it was not of any significant value. Edith was distraught, and Beasley comforted her while Potter stood over the scene. Police were contacted and an investigation immediately began. A post-mortem examination found that Charles's trachea had been sliced and he had extensive bruising on his chest and suffered broken ribs. Defensive wounds were also noted, including a cut on his left hand and bruises on the back of his right hand and forearm. The injuries were concluded to have been inflicted by the pitchfork and slash hook. Hair and blood was found on the walking stick and the time of death was recorded as being between 1pm and 2pm on the 14th of February. 
His shirt had been unbuttoned, as was his trousers, and oddly enough, there was nothing written about the carved cross on his chest in the post-mortem. It was discovered by the local superintendent, Alex Spooner, that this was not the first time that a person in the area was murdered in such a brutal way with a pitchfork. In 1875, at nearby Long Compton, a woman named Anne Tennant had been killed in a strikingly similar manner. Her body had been pinned to the ground with a pitchfork and a crucifix had been etched onto her chest. Her killer was a man named John Hayward, who told authorities that he believed her to have been a witch, who had cursed him and the other villagers. Later, it was discovered that the methods used in these ritual-type killings was a traditional Anglo-Saxon method of disposing of witches. Hayward was sent to live out the rest of his days in an asylum for the criminally insane. In 1885, a young ploughboy reported several sightings of a ghostly black dog, nine days in succession in the same place. An investigator in the Walton murder case, Robert Fabian, later claimed to have also seen this dog with his own eyes near Meon Hill at dusk. It had run past him and a little boy appeared but had not seen the animal. The large black dog was reportedly found the next day, hanging from a tree in the vicinity of where Walton's body was found, however this was never officially confirmed. The ploughboy from Alveston also allegedly saw an apparition of a headless woman, which coincidentally matched up to the timeline of when his own sister passed away. There were even whispers around the village suggesting that the young boy was related to Anne Tennant. Nine years later, the unverified connection was found out to be that Anne was his great-grandmother. The boy's name was Charles Walton. Alex Spooner also found that Meon Hill, the place where Charles Walton's body was found, was shrouded in mystery. Tales of dark magic and witchcraft only grew speculation that Walton's death had something to do with the occult. Authorities were not too keen on following up the witchcraft theory and believed that the pensioner had been slain in a random attack by a stranger or person known to him. The crime scene was examined numerous times, however, the silver watch that had disappeared was not yet recovered. Police interviewed over 500 people, yet couldn't find any clues to suggest who had taken Charles's life and why. Delving deeper into Charles's life, it was brought to light that he had moved to the house during World War I, and in 1927 his wealth was at its peak, after the death of his wife. Up until his own death, his savings had rapidly depleted, yet it could not be explained as to why he had lost so much money during this time. Interviews with various other dwellers in Lower Quinton once again brought life to the rumour mill that he had been practising witchcraft. Apparently, an unidentified man was seen aimlessly wandering the hills in the middle of the night, who many suspected to be Walton. 
He was said to carry out rituals to hex and blight the land. Some people actually blamed Charles for a crop failure in 1944, and apparently, having kept natterjack toads as pets, they all appeared one day in several local areas, leading people to believe a hex had been carried out. More black dog sightings were reported, and curiously, Charles had been killed during the pagan festival of Imbulg, supposedly the best day for a blood sacrifice, the blood used to replenish the earth. A letter was posted to Warwickshire Police, written by a Mrs Jones. The author claimed that she was a witch, and the wife of famous occult leader Alistair Crowley. She named her coven as those responsible for carrying out the blood sacrifice on Charles. However, once again, police dispelled this letter as being a hoax, believing witches had nothing to do with the death of Charles Walton. The cloud of suspicion fell upon the last man to have witnessed Charles on the day of his death, which was 40-year-old Alfred Potter, sometimes referred to in the media as Albert Potter, who conveniently left the crime scene just as Warwickshire police arrived. His statements to authorities were contradictory. Initially, he stated that he had been at a field called Cax Lays, went home at 12.30pm, read the newspaper for five minutes, his wife informed him that lunch would be ready shortly, then he went to the aid of one of his workers, Charles Batchelor, known as Happy, to pulp some mangolds at 12.40pm. The pair had both read 1pm on the church clock and Alfred returned home at five minutes past one. In a second interview, he said that he had left the college arms in the village and walked through Cax Lees. He reached the field at around 12.20pm and Alfred stated that he last saw who he believed to have been Charles some distance away wearing a sleeved shirt, yet the victim was found wearing a sleeveless shirt and jacket. Alfred claimed that he would have spoken to Charles had he not realised a heifer needed attention, having been stuck in a ditch. He allegedly darted home, read the newspaper for five minutes, and returned to the stranded cow at 12.40pm. This story was corroborated by Mrs Potter, yet the heifer was found to have drowned in Doomsday Ditch on the 13th of February. Alfred said that his fingerprints had been left on the murder weapon as he had apparently inspected the scene for himself before authorities were contacted. He said Harry Beasley had asked for him to check and make sure he is gone. However, Beasley denied that he'd said anything of the sort, as to him it was obvious that Charles was no longer alive. Potter's fingerprints were not actually found on the pitchfork, however, as it appeared that any trace of fingerprints had been carefully wiped from it. Describing the timeline of what happened that day didn't quite match, and the money he had paid Walton also was not consistent with the facts. However, despite all of this, authorities could not find a motive as to why Alfred Potter would murder Charles Walton. There was a possibility that there had been a dispute over money, as Alfred had borrowed some from Charles, however it was merely a rumour that police couldn't find any concrete evidence of. Many people believe Alfred Potter was the man responsible, yet he was neither arrested nor charged. 
Another theory was that Charles became a victim of a bloodthirsty fugitive. Located near to Lower Quinton was a camp which was full of Italian prisoners of war. Camp rules were rather lenient, so many were permitted to walk freely and unsupervised around the villages, including the farms. It was possible that one of the prisoners had slain Charles, but this theory was soon discarded due to lack of motive and evidence of such an event taking place. An Italian prisoner had been questioned after being found in a ditch with blood on his hand, however it had been a misunderstanding, as the prisoner had been hunting rabbits, something which he regularly did. George Higgins, a friend of Walton's, had an explosive argument with him a few days prior to his death, yet he was not considered a suspect due to his old age and frailty. It wasn't until 1960 when there was a small breakthrough in the case. A worker in the process of demolishing an outhouse located behind the Walton's home discovered Charles's missing watch. It was unknown as to how the watch got there and why it was there. Adding more fuel to the fire, a tiny piece of coloured glass was found within the watch, yet another sign of witchcraft, warding off evil spirits. Scotland Yard detective Robert Fabian, who was heavily involved in this case and called Mian Hill a bleak and lonely place, ominously wrote in his book The Anatomy of Crime. I advise anybody who is tempted at any time to venture into black magic, witchcraft, shamanism, call it what you will, to remember Charles Walton and to think of his death, which was clearly the ghastly climax of a pagan rite. There is no stronger argument for keeping as far away as possible from the villains with their swords, incense and mumbo-jumbo. It is prudence on which your future peace of mind, and even your life, could depend. The official cause of death was stated as murder by person or persons unknown, and he was buried in a churchyard in Lower Quinton. His grave, however, is no longer traceable as the churchyard was re-landscaped. Charles Walton's death has left investigators puzzled for over seven decades and the trail has gone cold, despite rumours that locals knew the identity of the perpetrator. Whether Charles was killed by someone known to him or not is unknown, as are the reasons as to why his life ended in such a barbaric way. The facts have almost been lost between the stories of black magic, druid rituals and witchcraft in an area rich with folklore, myths and legends. All that remains is speculation and unanswered questions, and the chilling murder of Charles Walton on St Valentine's Eve in 1945 remains unsolved. Felix Albert Pell, known as Albert Pell, was born on the 12th of June 1849 in Grandcourt, located in the former community of Aguille Blanche, presently known as Grand Aguille Blanche, in Savoy in the southeast of France. Shortly following his birth, Albert's father, who was a watchmaker and shopkeeper, separated from his mother due to allegations of infidelity. As a result, Albert and his mother moved to Paris, where his mother used her savings to establish her son as a watch and clockmaker in the French capital. 
Albert showed little interest in the profession and spent more of his time studying chemistry and playing music. He owned his own laboratory where he would mix his own concoctions, many of which included questionable ingredients and he took to the cobbled streets and boasted that he had knowledge of deadly poisons that would leave no trace of having existed. His deception deepened as he began dressing eccentrically and telling Parisians that he was a doctor of medicine and from an upper-class background. He also declared he was a professor of elocution at the prestigious Lycée Saint-Louis and that he was an organist at La Trinité. He believed women adored him and that he was a man of good fortune, but over time he gained a reputation for being wild and obsessed with telling lies. On the 16th of August 1872, his mother, who had been suffering with immense internal pains, passed away. By this point in his life, many of his mother's friends noticed that Albert had treated her terribly, and when they arrived at her home to bid her a final farewell, Albert turned them away with a quote, sneer, and requested for them to forget about his mother and move on with their lives. Once the house fell silent, Albert ransacked the property, even pulling up the floorboards to scavenge for money. French police questioned Albert about his mother's untimely death, and he told them that she had accidentally electrocuted herself whilst tampering with a battery belonging to him. Many residents in the surrounding area were suspicious. However, not a single person came forward to police with any evidence or words of caution about Albert Pell, leaving questions regarding his mother's death unanswered. Two years after his mother's death, Albert's father died, leaving him a large sum of £800, which in 2021 would be approximately £92,800, or US dollars Furthermore, he sold his father's stocks and purchased a residence in the wealthy area of Passy in Paris. Although living his life as a gentleman, his behaviour became erratic and, quote, bombastic, which resulted in Albert being taken to a lunatic asylum for an unknown length of time. Once he departed from the asylum, he became a sleeping partner for Théâtre de Délassement Comique, but shortly afterwards, he lost all of his remaining money and assets. Despite not having a penny to his name, in 1880, Albert hired Marie Mawan as a servant. However, mere days after becoming his employee, she fell ill. A few days later, another woman, Eugenie Mayer, who, quote, came to live with him as his wife, too succumbed to a sickness. Marie and Eugenie both suffered with symptoms including an endless thirst, vomiting and stomach discomfort. Marie departed from Albert's residence and checked into a local hospital where she was treated and made a full recovery, whereas Eugenie mysteriously vanished. Albert subsequently shut himself away from the world and refused to leave his home, with his mail being posted through his skylight. 
After many weeks had passed, he finally moved out of his apartment with his remaining possessions. A porter then visited the property and was aghast when he saw numerous bloodstains on the walls and floor. Reports suggested that he had sold Eugenie's clothes, but nothing came of this allegation. At some point in 1880, Albert Pell opened his own business, a clockmaker's shop, and later in the year married Eugenie Bouffereau. The marriage was not to last, and just two months later, his wife died under mysterious circumstances, eerily similar to those of Albert's mother, Marie Mouan, and Eugenie Mayer. When Albert wed, his wife had a £120 dowry, £14,800 in today's currency, or US dollars When his mother-in-law asked for the dowry to be returned to the family, he reportedly, quote, laughed in her face. Albert wasted no time and wed for a second time that year to a woman with a dowry of £200, approximately £24,700 or US dollars She was also to inherit a large sum of money on the event of her mother's death. She was Angèle Dufour Mourabellil, who had been his apprentice at the clockmaker's shop. Albert managed to convince his new bride's mother to live with the pair and over a short period managed to get both mother and daughter to change the executor of their wills and have Albert inherit their earthly possessions following their deaths. Both women fell ill, however they recovered. By the time his wife had recovered he had already spent the dowry in its entirety. His wife left him and returned to her mother's home. Albert hired a new servant named Elise Boomer, who was encouraged and agreed to live with him with a small amount of savings in her possession. He began requesting funds from her persistently, which she grew to become irritated by. On one occasion, a few weeks after the pair moved to Montreuil, the 40-year-old refused to give him any money, and later that day she grew ill with the same symptoms as his previous victims. A neighbour last witnessed Elise on the 12th of July 1884 in a frail state. Elise was never seen alive again. Albert barricaded himself inside his home. However, neighbours reported a strange smell coming from Pell's kitchen, the windows of which had been obscured by drapes. Albert had lit a fire in his oven, which neighbours were intrigued by, as it appeared to have been burning in the day and during the night. A few were of the opinion that Albert had murdered Elise and was burning her remains in his property, although this would never be proven. With suspicion mounting and rumours Albert had cremated Elise, police subsequently arrested him in late 1884. The 36-year-old insisted that Elise had deserted him for a lover called Walder and the pair went to live in Bucharest, Romania, with Walder later dying allegedly under a pseudonym. 
Albert, who was described in the French newspapers as frighteningly gaunt, was accused of several different poisonings and put on trial at the Assize Court on the 11th of June 1885, where he denied all of the charges. He seemed unfazed by the crimes he was being accused of, and he insisted that he was innocent. After a period of analysis and following an examination of Eugenie Mayer's body, which had been exhumed, it was stated that the individuals were victims of arsenic poisoning. With no body, experts at the trial discussed numerous possibilities regarding what could have happened to Elise, and a theory which suggested that she was dismembered in the back of the watchmaker's shop in Montreuil and then cremated in the oven of Pell's home being arguably the most accepted. To back the theory up, police found evidence such as ashes, a bloodstained saw, a hatchet and a knife, both of which were tainted with what appeared to be blood. Also recovered on Pell's property were books on the topic of chemicals and his stock of various concoctions he had brewed over the years. On the 13th of June, after less than an hour of deliberations, the jury returned with their verdict. In regards to the poisoning of his wife, Eugenie Bouffereau, they declared him not guilty, to the surprise of many. However, a guilty verdict was returned for the murder of Elise Boomer. Albert Pell was then sentenced to death. It was found that a member of the jury was not rehabilitated and was bankrupt, which resulted in a retrial. In August, Albert was found guilty of poisoning Elise, but he was given the benefit of a mitigating factor, which saw his death sentence being reduced to hard labour for the remainder of his life at New Caledonia Prison in Burai, New Caledonia, located 750 miles or 1,200 kilometres east of Australia. The French serial killer, known infamously as the Watchmaker of Montreuil, died on the 9th of June 1924 at the age of 74. 63-year-old Charles Cyril Cutler was a happily married father of two who lived in Dunsmuir Road, Stamford Hill, Hackney, London, and was described by those who knew him as a lovable old man. Charles was well known in the community, and the neighbouring children would affectionately refer to him as Old Arthur. By 1956, Charles had gained employment as a night watchman on the White Housing Estate on Daly Street. His hut was located on the corner of Anderson Road and Digby Road. He was quite responsible when it came to his safety in the hut and always locked the doors whilst on duty, only ever unlocking the doors if he was approached by someone he was familiar with. Despite being safety conscious, Charles was known to nod off on the odd shift. On the 1st of September 1957, Charles was on duty at the hut as usual. At this time, his wife Catherine was in hospital, though the reason why remains unclear. Charles's 13-year-old son, Edward, who was more commonly known as Teddy, went to the hut to visit his father to share some sweets with him. However, upon his arrival, he found the door locked. 
Teddy visited his father often at the hut, so he found it rather unusual that his father wouldn't unlock the door. Teddy knocked, but Charles did not answer. As a result, the boy climbed through one of the open windows. However, upon entering the hut, he found his father dead, blood around his head. Panicked, Ted escaped from the hut, running into two female friends, Janet Brown, aged nine, and Leslie Andrews, aged five, who witnessed him climb through the window. He screamed at them, desperate for help, so the girls went to neighbours and told them of old Arthur's gruesome murder. They managed to catch the attention of an apartment building caretaker who went to investigate their claims. The caretaker, George Gardner, was let into the hut by Teddy Cutler after sending the two girls away. Upon entering, George found Charles lying face down on the floor, blood around his head where he had been struck. His feet were tied and his hands were bound behind his back, and stuffed into his mouth was a black silk necktie. Two neckties of a similar fashion were also found within the hut, but it's unclear whether they belonged to Charles. His glasses case was also lying underneath him. George also noted a penknife and a fountain pen near Charles's head, and he noticed that the room was in a state of disarray. The phone receiver was broken and lying on the floor, and the drawers of various filing cabinets had been opened. It appeared that some sort of scuffle had occurred in the hut, and Charles had put up a fight. The post-mortem examination revealed that Cutler had suffered slow and painful suffocation, the cause of death officially being asphyxiation. It was believed that Charles died a few hours prior to having been gagged with the necktie, which had been overtied with another tie. Over-effective gagging most likely contributed to his demise, according to pathologists. Charles's death shocked the local community, who only ever had good things to say about him. Who would so brutally kill a kind and loving husband and family man, and more importantly, why? Following an examination of the scene, police were of the opinion that robbery was most likely motive in this case, despite the fact that Charles never kept any money in the watchman's hut. No news reports from the time mention anything being stolen from the hut, or anything upon Charles's person. If he had not been victim of robbery, what were the assailant's reasons behind attacking Mr Cutler? Was it a random attack, or was it personal? Charles had reportedly had a conversation the day he died where he mentioned to a woman that he had a weak heart, but also stated that despite his age and heart issues, he didn't want to die. It was initially considered that he may have suffered a heart attack, but this was later ruled out after pathologists examined Charles's body. Very little clues or evidence were found which could help police with their inquiries. Therefore, the possibilities as to what happened to Charles are almost endless. Police sought out two male individuals in regards to the so-called nightmare murder, both between the ages of 25 and 30. They were seen near the watchman's hut by witnesses at around 12.20am on the day in question. 
One of the men was described as having short, dark, curly hair and was thick-set, whereas the other male was described as slim, around six feet tall, with straight, dark hair. It is unclear whether the two males were ever traced or questioned. During the investigation, a number of witnesses came forward with some interesting information. A young couple walking near to the hut heard Charles shouting along the lines of don't touch me, don't hit me for about five or ten minutes, but despite concerns from the male individual, the 17-year-old female, Linda Andrews, believed that Cutler was having another one of his nightmares, and so they moved on and thought nothing more of it. The girl stated to police that she didn't want to disturb old Arthur whilst he was asleep. Andrews later stated her regret and feelings of guilt, having not gone to check on Charles that fateful night. An inquest into Charles's death was conducted, and following its closure, the jury returned with a verdict on the 28th of October 1957. Their verdict was murder by a person or persons unknown. To this day, it remains unclear who killed Charles Cutler and why. He was a much-loved character in Hackney, who had no known enemies. He wasn't a man who ever made trouble. The devastation of his death hit the Cutler family hard, especially 13-year-old Teddy, who found his father's body that fateful day in 1957. This case has remained unsolved for almost 65 years, and authorities are no closer to apprehending Charles's killer. The trail has simply gone cold.